So whether you love capitalism or hate capitalism, we should be able to agree that it's a very powerful force in the world. And so the idea of carbon pricing is to harness that powerful force to reducing carbon emissions. That was Yoram Bowman, one of our guests for this podcast episode. Welcome to The Future Ocean. What can carbon policy do for the oceans and our fisheries? This is a podcast for coastal Alaskans. Why are we talking about the future ocean and carbon policy? Well, scientists have shown us that Alaska is warming faster than most other parts of the world. And on top of that, our marine waters are a bellwether for ocean acidification. These changing conditions are traceable to global carbon emissions, resulting from the use of coal, oil, and natural gas. A consensus of scientists is calling for policies that rapidly change how we generate energy and fuel in our future economy. What's the good news? Well, one, we understand the problem. And two, engagement in how to meet the challenges is growing every day. The Future Ocean Podcast is an informational discussion sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network. I'm your host, Maggie Wall. In the first two episodes, we talked to scientists working in Alaska about what is happening to the ocean and our fisheries with regards to ocean acidification and ocean warming. We also talked about the International Panel on Climate Change and their scientific advice that we aim for net zero carbon emissions by 2050. This is episode three. We'll explore what it means to put a price on carbon emissions as a tool to accelerate the emerging transition to renewable energy. We'll ask our guests to demystify some of the terms used in policy discussions. What are externalities? The social cost of carbon? What's a market signal? Carbon tax? Cap and trade? Emissions allowance? And, wait for it, border carbon adjustment. If you're not an economist, get ready to expand your vocabulary. This may not be what most of us think or talk about every day, but stay with us. There are many examples out there showing that we have the technology and the innovative capacity to decarbonize our economy. It's a matter of bringing the transition to scale and doing it fast enough. The Future Ocean podcast is looking at carbon pricing as a potential tool to help do just that. Here's our first guest. Hi, I'm Mark Hafstead. I'm a fellow at Resources for the Future, a independent nonprofit institution based in Washington, DC. Our mission is to improve environmental energy and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Resources for the Future or RFF is uh, nonpartisan and we do not take institutional positions on any legislative, regulatory or any other public policy matter. And I'm also the director of our carbon pricing initiative, leading our research on carbon pricing. First, we asked Mark Hafstead to explain the foundational principle of externalities. So uh, using fossil fuels is a classic example of an externality that we talk about in, in economics. So uh, an externality is anytime you do something to your benefit that has a cost of someone else and you don't take into account the cost of someone else when you decide on how much you want to do that activity. So for a super simple example is playing music in your house. Maybe my preference is to have very loud music 
but then that has an externality on my neighbors who have to listen to uh, listen to my music. Um, and fossil fuels is 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 and climate change is actually probably the largest externality that we have on Earth. So when we choose to drive our cars, we are taking into account the benefit to us of, of driving our vehicle, but we're not taking into account the damage that the burning the, that gasoline is causing to our climate over time. So uh, economists like to try to think about what all these damages are caused by emitting a ton of CO2, and we call that the social cost of carbon. For coastal Alaskans, the social cost of carbon would be the consequences of warming and acidification for our fisheries and the other marine resources we harvest for food, or the loss of sea ice and risk to coastal communities from resulting storm surges, changes to nearshore habitats, like saltwater inundation to bird nesting areas. In the western states, think wildfires and drought. In some other places, flooding and sea level rise. These are costs borne by society, the external costs associated with the use of coal, oil, and natural gas. Assigning a dollar value to the social cost of carbon is a daunting, if not impossible, notion, since the consequences of ocean acidification and climate change are so far-reaching, and much of what's at risk has high value, but does not convert well into monetary terms. How much is a productive ocean worth? or a river full of salmon to future generations of Alaskans. Nonetheless, putting a price on carbon emissions is a way to start accounting for the externalities of our fossil fuel use in a manner that sets a trajectory for emissions reduction. So what it means to put a price on carbon is to um, internalize the costs that burning fossil fuels are causing on the climate. And so there's kind of two ways to do that. There is a, a carbon tax or fee, which is a set price set by the government that can change every year, but changes in a predictable fashion set by policymakers. And an alternative to that would be a cap and trade program, which limits the amount of emissions from covered sectors. In either a carbon tax or a cap and trade system, the carbon price is set per ton of emissions that will occur when the coal, oil, or natural gas is used in the economy to produce energy. Once a price is paid, that cost moves through the economy and is reflected in the cost of goods that we use, such as gasoline for our cars, or diesel for marine vessels, or say the manufacturing of steel. This sets up a market signal to the economy that can drive decisions about the most cost-effective way to generate electricity or manufacture steel, or what kind of vehicle you want to buy, or whether or not it makes sense to upgrade the engine on a fishing vessel. So a market signal operates through changes in, in relative prices of goods. And so the way that a carbon price works is that it increases the price of fuels, and then it increases the price of goods that are made with those fuels, and it, it filters down through the economy. So the, it raises the prices of things that are very carbon intensive more than it raises the prices of things that are less carbon intensive. And so in this way, by changing these relative prices, it is giving an incentive for the market to change its behavior in response to these changes in relative prices and use more of the low carbon goods than the high carbon goods. And so you know, a super simple example of this is in the power sector. So 
coal is the most carbon intensive fuel we have, uh, and natural gas is about half as carbon intensive. And then we have very many forms of uh, zero carbon power technologies, such as solar, wind, nuclear, hydro. And so a price on carbon in the power sector, whether through a cap and trade program or through a direct uh, carbon fee, it disincentivizes utilities to continue generating electricity through coal, transitioning to either natural gas or to the zero carbon technologies. Various sectors of the economy, such as the power sector, transportation, or manufacturing, may respond differently to a carbon price. So we asked Mark Hafstead about the maritime transportation sector and repowering, say, fishing vessels. Let's listen. So this is also a question you, you see in terms of the impact of carbon pricing on, say, electric vehicles, because some people just, you know, people buy cars with the expectation they'll be around for 15 years, and they can't afford to buy a new car today just because, because there's a carbon price in place. I imagine the same thing is even stronger in fisheries where the costs are higher. And so that is something some people say is a problem with carbon pricing. What I would say, though, is carbon pricing generates revenues, and those revenues can be used in a wide variety of ways. And so you could think of a public-private partnership where the government can maybe do loan guarantees, partial loan guarantees, to banks to be used to finance grading engines in, in ships. So I think that you know one of the things about carbon pricing is it generates revenues. That's not something we've talked about yet. And, and those revenues can be used in a wide variety of ways. We asked Mark Hafstead to give us an overview of the two forms of carbon pricing. Let's start with cap and trade. So a, a cap and trade system is where the government sets a certain number of allowances, and the number of allowances in place puts a limit on the number of emissions that can occur. But in its basic form, the number of allowances issued is equal to what emissions will be. And through auctions or trades between people who own those allowances, that creates a market price for the allowance. And what that's doing is essentially the market is determining what the price of CO2 will be. So cap and trade systems create emissions certainty, but not price certainty. Now let's see what a carbon fee or tax system is about. So then a carbon tax, the government sets a fee and determines how it changes over time. So what that does is it guarantees you price certainty but then you don't necessarily know what emissions will be in the future. And so there's some concern among environmental groups that a carbon tax has emissions uncertainty, and it means that if we put a given price in place, we might not be able to meet our targets. And so people have come up with these ways of, of adjusting the price over time if the emissions aren't meeting set targets. And so these are called kind of tax adjustment mechanisms. I've done quite a bit of research on these. And the idea is that the, every year you look at what the emissions were before, and if they're off target, you increase your price by a little bit more than you would have otherwise to try to get back to your target. And so most of the most recent bills that have been proposed have some type of adjustment mechanism like this. There are a number of policy decisions that have to be made in the design of a pricing system, such as which sectors of the economy will be subject to the price or what is the price itself. But any program is going to generate a lot of revenue for the government, either in the auction for allowances in a cap-and-trade program or in taxes or fees. 
And then I think one of the biggest decisions that policymakers have to make in terms of either policy is what do you do with the revenues? As I mentioned, revenue use is, is very important. It can be used for a wide range of things. And it's a very important, not just for the overall cost of the policy, but also for the distributional cost of the policy. So who's bearing the burden of the, of the taxes is very, very important. And the revenue use can help determine that. So there are countless research papers written and think tanks thinking about policies to reduce emissions. Not all those solutions are carbon pricing. There is, for example, direct financing of clean energy infrastructure. There could be regulations that set a clean fuel standard. There could be financing for household installation of rooftop solar, and so on. So we asked Mark Halstead, how does carbon pricing fit in with the huge suite of possible solutions? Oh, that's a great question. This is a, a huge debate, environmental and, and climate circles. There are certainly those who think that a carbon price is, is necessary and sufficient. So once you have a carbon price, you don't need any other types of regulations. The carbon price will take care of it on its own. Now, other people uh, in, in, these, in these discussions, they look at the types of prices that are being discussed by politicians, and they say there's no way that these low prices are politically feasible, are going to be enough to meet our very ambitious climate goals through 2030 and, and through 2050. And so it, to some extent, the, these two people are just arguing over what the right price is and what price is politically feasible and what price isn't politically feasible. I, I certainly think there's, there's a price out there that would be more than enough to um, reduce emissions enough to meet, meet our goals. But I think the, it comes down to the fact is that that price is probably too high for policymakers to swallow right now. And so that means we need, we need other policies pick up the slack for the, the lower carbon price. And so that calls for a carbon price being used as a suite of policies. We won't solve all these questions here, but let's just point out what our guest economists have said, that there are questions to answer in the design of any carbon pricing system. Those decisions can affect a policy success at driving down emissions and also resolve concerns people have about cost and fairness. That said, economists favor a well-designed carbon price as being the most efficient way to drive change because it lets the market do the work. That means companies will invest in technology or practices that cut carbon emissions if the cost to innovate is less than the fee to pay for a business-as-usual amount of emissions. Some innovations will be cost-effective to carry out at a price of $15 per ton of carbon and the market will not incentivize other, more expensive innovations until the carbon price is much higher. Let's hear briefly from Yoram Bowman. He's an independent economist focused on carbon pricing at the state level, a co-founder of the group Clean the Darn Air, and author of The Cartoon Introduction of Climate Change. He reflects on the rationale for pricing things we don't want, that is, carbon emissions, as the market discipline that's needed to get what we do want, clean energy. You don't get to taste the honey without the sting of the bee. And that's a phrase that comes to mind all the time for me when it comes to carbon pricing, because everybody wants the stuff that you get from carbon pricing. Everybody wants incentives to reduce emissions and everybody wants, you know, revenue to address impacts on, you know, low-income households and small businesses or whatever. And like 
everybody wants all these things, but n- nobody wants the sting of the sting of the bee is the carbon price, right? Like you got to pay more for fossil fuels. And the thing that's great about markets is that markets work incredibly well at lots of things, right? They're very good at encouraging innovation. They're very good at encouraging conservation, development, new technologies, all that stuff. But the discipline, you know, it's, it's market discipline. Carbon pricing is a way to use what I call the tools of economics and the power of capitalism to protect the environment. So whether you love capitalism or hate capitalism, we should be able to agree that it's a very powerful force in the world. And so the idea of carbon pricing is to harness that powerful force to reducing carbon emissions and addressing climate change. And the way to do that is to, you know, the way to get less pollution is to make polluting expensive. Well, thank you to Yoram Bowman for a lively perspective on the power of market forces. And many thanks to our other guest, Mark Hafstead, from Resources for the Future. Up next, tiny tidbits about big things with Cheryl Nugent. Discussions around carbon pricing often raise concerns about cost. So let's have a look at the year 2020 for one measure of the cost of doing nothing. NOAA reports 2020 was an historic year of extremes. There were 22 separate billion-dollar weather and climate disasters just in the United States. That's seven disasters linked to tropical cyclones, 13 to severe storms, one to drought, and one to wildfire. These extreme events cost the U.S. a combined $95 billion in damages. And the International Panel on Climate Change Scientists are clear that these costs would get much worse if we don't transition away from fossil fuels. So maybe the question about cost is really, when do we want to pay it? Now? As a price on emissions, with the goal of staving off the most extreme and costly consequences of climate change and acidification? Or later? when the global temperature and levels of ocean acidification have exceeded thresholds advised by the world's scientists? Food for thought. On the bright side, the Energy Act of 2020 was a groundbreaking bipartisan bill tucked into the huge federal spending bill that passed the end of 2020. Passage of the Energy Act was spearheaded by Alaska's own Senator Lisa Murkowski. It has been called a down payment on action needed to address ocean warming, the myriad of other manifestations of climate change, and ocean acidification. The Energy Act might have been overshadowed by everyone's attention on COVID pandemic relief funding, but the Energy Act deserves time in the spotlight. One of its primary successes is in modernizing and refocusing the Department of Energy's R&D programs on pressing technology challenges. These include scaling up clean energy technologies, energy storage, and carbon capture. This sets things up for forward movement on some of the toughest challenges ahead. And here's a tidbit for the mariners among us. If the current trajectory continues, international shipping emissions are expected to grow by up to 250% by the year 2050. That's an ominous fact, but a coalition of over 120 companies is working to have commercially viable zero-emission vessels operating along deep-sea trade routes by 2030. And did you see in the news that the global shipping giant Maersk is calling for a carbon tax of $150 per ton of emissions? Do you think they see a carbon-free future? 
to the question of what can I do, there's a lot we can all do in our own lives and businesses to reduce our personal carbon footprints. With some support, doing those things should become normal responsibilities like recycling and storing our trash in bear-proof containers. But decarbonizing our economy is big and requires public policy to scale up success, drive sufficient investment, and retool our productive capacity for clean energy. So one thing you can do is follow the policy discussion and find a way to the table. Resources for the Future has a detailed website with a carbon price explainer series, including more on cap-and-trade systems and the carbon tax approach, a look at jobs, revenue use, and health. Go to www.rff.org. In the next two episodes of the Future Ocean podcast, we'll explore the cap-and-trade model and carbon fee or tax systems in some detail. For now, here's some teasers from upcoming guests on the Future Ocean podcast to pique your curiosity. First, Darren Scott from Kodiak Electric Association, reflecting on the early days in their adventure with renewable energy. It wasn't so much cost. It wasn't the whole green power that initiated things. It was the variability of our cost of power. So you know, the fish processing organizations or the hospital or the schools, they're trying to budget. They're trying to plan. And, um, and they're like, well, what, what's our price of power going to be? And then my only answer was, how much is it going to rain for a hydro plant? And what's the price of diesel going to be? Here's Tony Cerna from the Citizens Climate Lobby with his take on what economists call border carbon adjustments, a kind of tariff on the carbon emissions associated with goods traded across international borders. Right now, we're already seeing that countries like Canada that have a carbon price or the European Union, where they've got a carbon price as well, they're both looking at the question of can they do border carbon adjustments? These are some of America's biggest trading partners, and they're looking at starting to charge American businesses fees when our products are imported into their country. And finally, here's Chris Rose of the Renewable Energy Alaska Project on clean energy opportunities in Alaska. In the last decade alone, the price of solar power has come down 90%. In the last decade, the price of wind power has come down 70%. And the price of energy storage has come down almost 80% in the last decade. We have an opportunity now to actually generate electricity cheaper than fossil fuels. So it's a no-brainer. Those are some of our guests in coming episodes. We hope you'll join us. For more information about the topics we've been discussing, please visit our website, thefutureoceanpodcast.com. You can also find all six episodes there. Or you can listen by subscribing to The Future Ocean on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Future Ocean Podcast is sponsored by the Alaska Ocean Acidification Network and is produced in Kodiak, Alaska, where electricity is generated nearly 100% by renewable energy. Music in this episode is by Chris and Sweeney. I'm your host, Maggie Waugh.